computer's online. listeners out there uh good thank you so much for taking time uh to, to talk to me great because um i always like to have people on that are doing good work in jfk research and unfortunately there's the posners and the other people that i don't think are doing good work uh, you know it's just defeating the cause but um you have a new book it's just out this week i believe and I yes. just went. Do you want to quickly discuss it? Give us an overview, and then I'll get. I have a few questions about what I wanted to talk to you about, about in particular. Well, first Working of all, on, where, where is yeah. it available? Do you have a website of that? And it's, on, uh, it's on Amazon. I have to. I am going to update my own website, prayer-man.com, tomorrow or the day after, and all the links will be there. But on Amazon, it's. On all the Amazons available in ebook and in softback cover format. The ebook came out on July 31st, and it took me quite a bit of time to get the softback sorted out. And then I had the pleasure of t- having to wait for my demo copy for two weeks. So, and then the second it came out, a quick read through, blah blah blah, and I was like, okay. I can send it out now for people uh, to buy it as such. So it's been available for three days now. Okay, good. Just a couple of days and we're right on top of it. Prayer Man, More Than a Fuzzy Picture is the title. And in a nutshell, it's about documentation in the JFK assassination. It's There's a lot of transcripts there from from what people really said. Yeah. it's basically, I, I focus on Prayer Man, which is the, basically uh, an image of an individual in two films, the Weakman and the Darnell films. I found evidence and others have found evidence that basically point this to be Lee Harvey Oswald standing on um, either the, probably one step below the landing of the front steps of the Texas School Book Depository. Now, by finding that evidence, I also started to map out what was happening inside the building during and just after the shooting and also Lee Harvey Oswald's interrogations, which takes over more than half of the book actually, uh, which is a chronological setting of from the moment he gets arrested in the Texas theater till they are still shouting at him while he's uh, being operated upon after he's being shot by Jack Ruby and such. Right. Now, I guess before we get into the book, briefly, what got you interested in the assassination? 
Well, it started um, during the late 70s, in the second half of the 70s, when the HCA was happening. And uh, for those that don't know, I'm from the Netherlands, so in Holland, and there was a documentary, and I think it was one from the BBC, but it was aired through uh, one of the Dutch channels at that time. I was, what, 11 years old, and that made quite an impression on me. And then whenever there was an article or something on television, then I would always be wanting to look at it, or an article in a magazine, like at the hairdressers and things like that. You'd like, be like, oh yeah, right, let's read this, that's interesting. And then the movie, of course, that really uh, flame, really got me going. Um, it started that I was watching the film in uh, an American cinema in Vienna, Austria, and I fell asleep, so I was a bit miffed about that, and I went back to Holland straight after. And then I watched it in the cinema there, and then I got the director's cut, and so forth on VHS tape. Then I left for London in 94. And then with the internet, I just started looking at a few things. And one of the first searches was, uh, I think it was either Fletcher Prouty or it was the AK assassination. And just started to look at things. And then I quit in 97, 98. I was just fed up. Um, you know, the connection wasn't that good. And uh, I had different interests. And then... 10, 12 years later, about 2010, 2011, I wanted to quit social media. Started to read more books and then um, forums. I went on forums. I'm mean, still a member at Reopen Kennedy Case, Greg Parker's forum. I've been a member there since 2014. Um, I've been at other places, but I've left them all. Um, is there one item? Is there one item in the assassination that really piqued your interest? For me, Prayer Man, because Prayer Man allows you to solve the puzzle. I don't, you see, my problem with a lot of the research that's presented as such, this doesn't have game changer or end game element to it as such. Look, if Prayer Man is Lee Oswald, then you've got a massive problem because then the entire deck of cards just tumbles down with everything that's been kept up as such. And slowly but surely, and that's just what the book is about, it's just displaying all the evidence, what the FBI, what the DPD, what the Secret Service, what they all put together as such. And you start to understand why it was all hidden, why it was all covered up as such. You know, um, it slowly becomes, once you start putting it in a chronological order, you start to see patterns and you start to see things and you go, well, I never thought that would. I mean, it was only recently that I, when I, uh, started putting things together in in the late uh, late last year and early this year, the first three months, four months this year, that I came to the conclusion that there was absolutely no nothing about the Heidel ID or any connection to the murder weapon when Oswald was allegedly arraigned for the murder of the president. They had nothing. They had absolutely nothing. They had no fingerprints. Marina said no to the rifle. She didn't recognize it, etc., etc. And they had nothing. Yet, allegedly, they arraigned him for the murder, although that's still up for discussion as well, because it happened in the middle of the night. There were very few witnesses, very few newspapers reported it. Only, I think, three or four did. Uh, you know, so there, the, the, the beauty of, I think, of this book is that I'm trying to let the evidence do the talk, and I'm not trying to put my own personal point forward, my opinion, this, well, that, and the other. it sure does, and the thing about it that I hadn't read some of these transcripts 
and then you, you know you interject with some comments to put it in perspective. Mm-hmm. But um, kind of what a clown show was going on. I mean, yeah. really. Well, when Fritz says, I think after the fact that you know we really didn't have a case. But, you know, everybody just kept pushing it. Must be the guy. It must be the guy. Yeah, you know, the, yeah. But I was going to go back a bit. For me, it was Commission Exhibits 399. Whenever I would see some TV show about it, when I looked at that bullet, I just went, well, no, there's no way. So, and, and for you, you're saying that figure in the doorway, because if that's Lee, then it the whole thing falls apart. Yeah. I mean, for me, it was something that, that can solve something of this case i mean there's a lot of stuff that points to contradiction and and and, and, and cover up and and nefarious this nefarious that but this is something that actually we still have the materials and if we get hold of them and use artificial intelligence deep blur then we probably might get to something that basically will show that that's lee oswald you know the quality of the films that are available aren't the greatest um nbc still has those films and you know we could just solve this whole debate uh right there and then if they just give me some really good scans and uh i'll let artificial intelligence loose on it and uh, i'll show everyone the results free of charge so but it's not just that it's not the picture is only the icing on the cake Len. you know it's the evidence if you look at the first interrogation what actually happened in that particular interrogation, with which starts off with Wolf Fritz and Detective Sims and Boyd, and then get, gets joined by James Bookhout and James Hosty. And what happens in that particular interrogation is pivotal of what's happening next and after. And they basically um, kill off his alibi right there and then already during that interrogation. You know, the interrogation was the hardest part of doing that because there was a lot of material. There was lots of people involved. You know, it's like a copy and paste exercise. Just take that bit and put it in that little bit of chapter because that concerns this and that concerns that bit and that's done a day later and so forth. And then you start to basically slowly start to put the puzzle, put, putting the puzzle together and starts to see a bigger picture and go, right, this is actually what happened. And the DPD and the FBI and the Secret Service were all separate entities. There's no collaboration whatsoever there. And what the DP- and the FBI worked behind the DPD's back from an investigative point of view. And the Secret Service too. I mean, okay, of yeah, course. Yeah, you know. So yeah, the statements they did in the first week of uh, December are highly contradictory to what was said before. You know, there's uh, there's quite a few statements from December the 7th and December the 8th where they did interviews with the uh, Texas School Book Depository employees. And you just go like, no, it can't be. And this this made up stuff just being added on, basically, just to thicken the sauce or sex it up, so to speak. Yeah. Now, what was it about your being online and and whatever, being in news groups that, that was a catalyst to get you to write a book about this? Was it just people well, arguing and saying, look, I'm, I'm going to organize this so everybody can get it in perspective? Um, well, that's a long story. It basically started, my interest in documents started about 2015, 2014, 2015. And I started lurching at uh, Clayton Ogilvie's work of the Harold Weisberg archive. I spent probably almost the whole of 2015 there. Sometime at the uh, 
the archives in Waco, uh, John Armstrong and a few others, uh, Penn Jones, uh, had some documents, this, that, you know, some bits. But it was m predominantly the Harold Weisberg archive, uh, purely because of the sheer volume of material. And when you st the, the problem with documents is that it's incredibly splintered. You're only looking at a very fine detail of a certain aspect of the case. But if you start looking, reading many, many documents, then you start basically, just imagine you have uh, a whole wall full with pigeonholes and boxes and basically you start just putting all these bits of documentation in there and then slowly you start thinking oh, hold on a minute i know about this bit yeah i remember that blah 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 and start putting that together and then the, the story starts to develop and that was one thing what really kicked it off was um my collaboration with malcolm blunt that started in 2016 at first and he gave me a usb stick with two gigs of documents and the majority was on Nosenko, which is a, a subject that he's been very interested in, researched heavily, Yuri Nosenko. And I just found one document that was done by the CIA uh, regarding uh, all the people that were inside the Texas School Book Depository and who, uh, what, what, what their movements were and so forth. And it was a really good analytical document from the Central Intelligence Agency. I've got to give them kudos for that. Uh, they were spot on with what they wrote down. And then slowly Malcolm started to send me an envelope here, an envelope there. And then all of a sudden, after I had to go into a hospital, came out after 10 days. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to pop around. We're going to have a chat. Okay. And the next thing I know, Malcolm and I have agreed. So I was going to um, digitize Harry Livingston's archive. And Malcolm bought part of that archive uh, about... 25 odd years ago and he had a lot of cassette tapes and he says do you want to digitize these and i said yeah sure so i did that and then videotapes came and you know it was 300 audio tapes 350 videotapes and then i started doing livingston's archive and then i started all of a sudden i started reading malcolm's archive now i knew malcolm only as somebody who had worked with armstrong uh and then basically got into the Cuban thing and then and then into the CIA thing and also New Orleans and stuff but he was just like I didn't know he was doing that much on Dallas and he did and he did loads on Dallas and so I started talking to him and then I saw some of the documents and I went oh I don't have this and I don't have that oh god I don't have this and this will fit in there perfectly so I just started basically again started putting the pieces on the puzzle together and until I found a really whopper of a document early Feb 2019, um, it was actually uh, pure luck. I opened the drawer and I said, okay, I'll get this folder. And it was the folder in James Hosty. And then I found the Hosty document, which is basically a document that was created by Hosty within hours after the interrogation of Oswald and where he basically said that Oswald had said that he went outside to watch he had a Coke for his lunch and he went outside to watch the presidential parade. And I was like, holy cow, I've never thought I would find anything like this. And so I ended up going through Malcolm's archive. I did the whole thing. So you got to imagine there's about 25 four drawer cabinets, absolutely filled to the brim with paperwork and folders. But the problem was that it wasn't organized at all. 
So just imagine all that. So 100 drawers with file folders and just put them in a bulldozer and turn it upside down and then basically start putting it back together again and put it back in the drawer. That's what it looked like. So I ended up copying everything. And with that, uh, with that archive, I found out a, a unique element, which was the fact that there's a lot of documentation in Malcolm Blunt's archives that is not available online. So regardless of the releases, regardless of what was already available, um, there's, a, there's a huge percentage, and I don't dare to say, but it's at least 30% or maybe 40 I got to a point that I just went, you know what, I'm not scanning anything in that's already at Mary Farrell or at the National Archives. I'm just going to scan the stuff in that, isn't, that I can't find a trace of online. And it was loads. It was absolute loads of stuff, basically. So I scanned all that in. It delayed me and my book because I was like, I need to go through all this to know whether I have gone through everything before I finish the book off. So um, I did all that. We did interviews. They're on YouTube, Malcolm and I. We just talk about stuff, about the collection. And that basically helped me uh, with the stuff that I already had. Uh, Malcolm's material, the quality of it, allowed me to put things forward that I would never even dare to put forward, say, three, four years ago and say, well, you know what, I'm 100% certain to say that when they, when they allegedly arraigned him in the middle of the night at about 1, 1.30 in the morning on the 23rd, they had no evidence whatsoever. And it was only because I started looking into the fingerprints and the fingerprints were picked up by the FBI. Vince Drain picked them up after Oswald's press conference. So at that point, they didn't have any fingerprints at all. So there's no connection. So then they photograph Oswald after the press conference in, in his white T-shirt because they take his shirt off him because the FBI takes that shirt. And then you start reading that they've got to take new fingerprints again by Lieutenant Carl Knight. So there's a breakage in the evidence. So, you know, um, and there are other things like the Heidel ID. Now, whether the Heidel ID existed in New Orleans, etc., isn't really my bother. My bother was more or less, <coughs> excuse me, um, is the fact that was there a Selective Service card with that name? in Oswald's wallet, and there wasn't. There's too much evidence from people that were there that day that did not see anything that would have made mention of it. Heidel, the Heidel name doesn't get mentioned until the 23rd at 11.30 in the morning, and they had him interrogated three times before that. So, you know, I mean, that's the, the, the Blunt archive, plus all the other stuff from all the other archives before, allowed me to trying to paint a concise picture of what actually happened inside the TSBD on the front steps and also inside the Dallas Police Department from the moment uh, Oswald was arrested till his death. Yeah. Now, th the thing that is a little depressing to me going through that is like I called it a clown show earlier, but it's just like some kind of organized confusion. And every time they need some piece of you know, material or evidence or something, it gets dropped on his desk. 
and they go, oh, okay, right? You know, like just the fact that they're they're looking for one guy that didn't show up, you know, after the lunch break, you know, and uh, they're trying to find Lee Oswald and um, the other detective says, well, we have him here right now. Well, I don't believe that story, in all honesty. It comes from Gus Rose who said that. And I don't, I don't believe that for a second. Uh, Gus Rose lied his, lied his, lied his ass off left, right, and center. I know. That's what I'm trying to say, though. That yeah. it's just, just one thing after another. It's kind of awkward reading because you, when you don't believe it, you go, "Well, this is not only is this fraud." Like you kind of wonder how anybody believed. Yeah, but if you keep it all secret, and you keep it secret for decades, and only parts leak out, not the complete picture. I mean, I tried to put a complete picture forward. Although it's still not complete. I mean, I bet there's other stuff, but. Well, the you know, good thing I, about I, your book. I hunted this. Pardon me. Just the good thing about the book is you lay it out kind of like a, like a John Armstrong where, um, where he said, listen, there's, there's something going on here. There's something going on here. And then, and to his point of view, he said, well, wait a minute. There must be an imposter. There must be two people here because, and when you're talking about, you've got these FBI documents saying what's happening at 11 o'clock and somebody else is what's happening at 1130. And you can tell one hand doesn't know what the other is doing. Yeah. And it, it's just, unfortunately, clown show is, is it comes to mind for me. Ah, uh, yes. And you know what? This is a big case and they got away with it. That's another thing that everybody, all the listeners need to understand. They won. Yeah. They're talking like losers here in a way because they've had it now for 60 years. They've managed to keep it covered up, even though, you know, this is quite a revealing book. There is evidence in there that's never been publicly available, you know, and there are things basically that have accumulated by gathering all this evidence as well, like Oswald being frisked. I mean, Oswald's frisked in the car from the Texas Theater to the Dallas Police Department. First of all, by uh, Paul Bentley and uh, in the car. He's the guy with the cigar who's photographed outside with Oswald just before they get into the unmarked car. It's a famous Stuart Reed picture outside the Texas Theater. And there's a guy next. Uh, so he gets he frisks him in the car to basically get an idea of him. So they call that through. And then there's Charles Truman Walker, who was a patrolman. He had a big white cap on. He's actually the guy who's on the other side of Oswald, outside the text theater, photographed by Stuart Reed. And he says in his HSCA report that he basically said, oh, you know what, before we left, I frisked him and I frisked him real good. Okay, fair enough. You think like that's standard procedure. All right, fine. But then you start hearing about Oswald is basically being interrogated for about an hour and a bit and that's after book out and hosty have come in and on five past four they're going downstairs because it's time for the helen markham lineup but just before that lineup elmer boyd and richard sims the detectives who were upstairs with him they allegedly go through his pockets and one finds a bus ticket in his chest pocket and i thought yeah all right you know, that can happen. Flimsy bus ticket. They didn't feel it when they touched him up. But, but then they also find half a dozen bullets in his left front pocket. And I'm going, no way. That's just rubbish. So that just tells me, like, either the the, the two officers that did the uh, frisking at two different occasions before Oswald was interrogated were complete amateurs or it's been inserted. And then if you start looking at how the bus ride and Beckley and 
how all that happens, the so-called gun. There's so many mistakes and so many contradictions in there. I absolutely doubt that Oswald went to Beckley uh, to get his jacket and uh, pick up his gun and such. I must have believed that what Roger Craig said, got in the car and went straight to the Texas theater instead. But just the fact that you can point out these things with the with the Dallas police and you go, it can't be, it can't be, you can't put this, you can't put this out officially. And yet at the same time, just think that people don't see this, but because it just, it's been hidden and especially the FBI documentation, which is absolutely fantastic because federal agents are bureaucrats. They're beautiful bureaucrats. Everything is to the nine when it comes to writing things down in detail and so forth. If you look at the CIA document, you get a complete different kettle of fish. You're looking at euphemistic language. Nothing is spoken in great detail. You know, uh, cryptonyms instead of like using an, uh, or an operation name and just the handlings of a particular person whose identity is being kept secret in the first place anyway. But what he's actually doing as such, that's all covered in smoke and mirrors and stuff you know that's that's typical cia document if you compare it with an fbi document fbi document especially the ones from tolson and from hoover oh my god they're beautiful they're detailed they're to the point it's like oh right yeah oh, okay you know all these things and you just start to f- pick all these things out these letters and they just you just start to categorize it by timing it you know you find all these documents that like within an hour or two after Oswald's arrest. And they're already like, you know, they're getting hammer and nails ready for him, for crucifixion, because they just said, yeah, I think it's him. And it was Hoover who said this at about three o'clock. And I'm going, three o'clock? Bookout and Hosty haven't even arrived yet inside because they don't arrive until 3.15 inside room 317 of Homicide and Robbery, Will Fritz's office. So... And Hoover knows more, you know, by, by, by saying that, he already knows more what's happening than anyone else in Dallas. You know, nobody's interrogated Oswald at that time yet or is just about interrogating Oswald. And that's just absolutely flabbergasting to just see that in print, you know. And then the same goes with Nicholas Katzenbach, it becomes obvious that especially that those circles between the district, uh, the, the general attorneys, attorney generals and the assistants, that um, they're trying to put the guilt into Oswald's shoes so quick. I mean, <clears throat> it used to be a thing in um, the, the Oliver Stone documentary where they started talking about a Hoover and Katzenbach memo, which was dated about a week later. And people said, my God, that's quick, you know, that they already want to get uh, rid of Oswald and declare him guilty and so forth. And I thought, yeah, it's quick. And then the document started to come out in 2017. And there was a document from Hoover that it was already done on the 24th or the 25th. And then you see a Katzenbach memo from the 22nd that he also was assigned guilt to uh, Oswald. Then you start finding another document from like at three o'clock where he writes to um, Norbert Schleier who's an assistant uh, DA. And it was was just like, these are all, these documents are all connected together about the same thing, just assigning guilt to Oswald. 
as quickly as possible. Yeah, so yeah, that's I, the beauty of the documents. I'm not sure if I recall this correctly, but didn't somebody from the White House wire into Air Force One just before they're taking off saying that, we, well, we have one man? We, uh, one man's been arrested and uh, um, I don't know that bit uh, to be honest you see I mean my focus maybe maybe they were already in the air but it was something like yeah. that that like well, how can they know there's only one man yeah, I mean the DRE would did a really good good job in uh, getting into the newspapers in New Orleans and all that getting the story out about Oswald I think they were the first one if I'm not mistaken who did all who started to spread all that information about Oswald the defector. And there was a lot of information already available within very little time uh, of, uh, since his arrest. And that's another thing you're looking into the Heidel ID. And there's a lot of, uh, yeah, dodgy, dodgy workings going on with the 112th uh, Military Intelligence Group. Robert E. Jones about uh, the Heidel ID and so forth and how the the name came forward and how it's being reported back to the FBI and to the DOJ and how uh, some somebody from the Dallas police called it through. And it's really hard to reconcile that because... You mean somebody from military intelligence gave an address? You no, know, somebody from uh, Dallas police called military intelligence and gave that name, passed that name, Alec J. Hadell through. And that's really hard to reconcile because they say, well, it happened at one, between one and two o'clock in the afternoon. Now, Oswald didn't get arrested until 10 to two and didn't arrive inside DPD, like when he's being filmed, just going past Billy Lovelady when he goes in the holding cell at about three or four minutes past uh, two as such. So... The problem is that they say then that they have the ID, but the issue is that James Bookout was there, and Bookout is the only one who took notes. And Bookout wrote that bit where Oswald said that he was watching the presidential parade. But Bookout also goes in the other room, which is Walter Potts's room, where the evidence was laid out. Now, you think that if there were a different ID, you think that the DPD or the FBI would not bring that up during an interrogation. I mean, he went through the, all his stuff, his, 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 his address book and so forth, and at about three, just after three o'clock, sorry, four o'clock, and I'm thinking, what, that wouldn't have been mentioned in the next interrogation? Of course it would have been if that, if that, if that ID had been there. So nothing is absolutely mentioned about it, about the Heidel ID, until the next morning, like I said, 11.30. They try to backdate a statement from Manning Clements, who, invest, who, who interrogates Oswald also in the early evening of the 22nd. And he backdates his report and saying that he saw the ID lying there. But then again, also, that is not feasible or possible either because they had another interrogation with Oswald later that evening after Clemens did it. And again, they're not mentioning anything about IDEL ID. And at that time, the Secret Service is involved as well. And their report, the FBI report, and the Dallas police notes, no mention whatsoever on IDEL ID whatsoever. What the FBI also didn't do was to, when the Warren Commission was in session, 
they did not pass on the documentation of the military intelligence files, anything like that, to the Warren Commission to look at. They just kept that quiet. Like it didn't, it didn't happen. All that stuff from the military intelligence didn't come forward until the HSCA. I think Paul Hotch is quite responsible for that. It brought a lot of stuff forward, if I'm not mistaken. And that's when all the, when a few people like uh, Robert E. Jones and Stephen Weiss and a few others were interviewed as such. And, you know, they gave good insight in certain things that were happening actually behind the curtain, so to speak in the back room and what these people were doing as such when 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 something like that, like that assassination was happening. Right. So in the case that Lee Oswald is a patsy, like he said, they're revealing how people would have been moved around the chessboard. Is that what you're getting at? I think uh, I'm of the opinion, it is an opinion, but that's after all the work that I've done, is that Oswald was involved one way or another. How, I don't know. But what I do know, I find it really suspicious to go and leave so quickly and get in a car and get dropped off at a cinema and then sit there and watching a movie or two while the president has just been killed. And you don't go back to your wife and say, listen, darling, president's just been killed, blah, 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 etc., etc." That whole bit just strikes me as odd. Well, he was he was moving that. from seat to seat trying to connect with somebody. At yeah, the people say that. That's not really a hundred percent clear. They say that it was in the Jim Douglas book as well. The okay. Texas Theater sure. is an area that still needs. But the problem is that the fact that he left so quick. So he left in about twelve to fifteen minutes after it happened, and that uh, that by itself is already causing a huge problem issue with the so-called second floor lunchroom encounter and his alleged departure after two and a half minutes from the Texas School Book Repository. Of I course, guess, that didn't happen. I, 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 I take your point there. I'm just saying that from my point of view, for someone to finally kind of get that look in their face and he says, I'm just a patsy, that means there was something going on that he knew he was going to be taking the blame for. Otherwise, yeah. at what point would you ever say I'm a patsy for something? Because you wouldn't have any idea of what it was. But if you had an idea, you know, <laughs> the guy, I think if the guy says um, you have been charged, a reporter, and you see that yeah, look on his face. That's in the middle of the night. So yeah. the patsy sequence is at 740 on the 22nd. Now, what's really interesting is that this is in the book, in the timeline. So around 7, 7 p.m. On, the, on, on Friday, the 22nd. Oswald is arraigned for the Tippett murder. And then he comes out and he's filmed. And that's the first thing when he says, they've been giving me a hearing without legal representation. And the police say, goes, did you shoot the president? And he goes, I didn't shoot anybody. No, sir. Blah, blah, blah. Now, this is from basically going from homicide and robbery to the elevator. The elevator takes him down for the, if I'm correct, the Davis sisters, Barbara, Jeanette and Julia. I don't know the Davis sisters. And then he comes up and that's when the Patsy sequence starts. We start is about 20 to eight. Now. So a has been already charged with the murder of a policeman of which he goes, I've got nothing to do with that. I didn't kill anyone. So he's already charged and he's already well impressed. And then at the same time, the press is already hounding him for shooting the president. And of course, he denies it all the time. Every time that they do ask him, 
he he does so, and it, he does deny it. And on top of that, he always asks about legal representation. He asks you about several times that he wants to speak to a lawyer. He's kept in the dark as well. Even when on Saturday the 23rd, when he speaks to H. Lewis Nichols at 5 p.m., he says, I have no idea what's going on. I'm completely kept in the dark. And that's what they did. They didn't tell him anything. And they kept the lawyers away from him as well. People tried to get in touch with him, tried to talk to him. He tried. He didn't get a phone call for 24 hours, you know. So, and somebody told him to call John Apt. And John Apt had already gone to his second house somewhere near a lake, or, you know, his outdoor place. And uh, couldn't get hold of him as such. And that's the thing. You know, even people that tried to get hold of Oswald by sending him a telegram. It got uh, Harold McDermott. It was one of them, I think. And it got uh, just uh, put in a drawer, you know. Well, he said he didn't want to talk to anyone else. So, uh, you know, he would have taken anyone at that point. But, you know, he's not innocent. He's innocent from shooting Kennedy and Tippett. But... He, for my feeling, after reading all this, if you look at his history, what he's all been doing, you know, going to Russia and all, all these things, the fingerprints of intelligence are all over Lee Oswald, you know. But, you know, you can speculate as right. much as you like about that. I, I, I have a little empathy, though, because I have a feeling, really, that, and that's just my opinion here. He was set up totally for this, and he was not yeah. prepared at all for, um, you know, and, and like you mentioned, if he knew what would be going on, that's why he had to be gotten you know, rid of right away. Like, you know, we're not going to let this guy talk. There's going to be no testifying. I don't care who you get, but you've got to bump him off. I would have never been able to convict him. Half-decent lawyer would have easily get him walked to walk away from it. I mean, that's what surprised me about all these so-called muck trials. But the thing is, the problem with all these mock trials is that they're based on incomplete evidence. You don't have it all. And this is another thing which, and I'm going to upset some people with saying this, but so be it, is that overall, when it comes to the archives and hunting down the documents and so forth, the majority is really lazy in doing this. You really have to chase, because there's so much paperwork. I mean, you know what? I look at Malcolm Blunt's archive. And it's 150, 165,000 pages I've done. What is that on five or seven million pages? To drop, it's, it's a small percentage. It's nothing. You know, it's 5% of that. And well, I thank you for the work you've done so more, you know, right now, and, and everyone should get this book just to kind of get up to speed you. what you have found out. And like you're saying, there's still more to, to be learned. And I think the, the, big global lesson is they got away with it now if yeah. you are interested if you want to know how they did it how they could obfuscate every uh, i mean i it was even of interest of how many times because you document this lee was asked did you shoot anybody and, and the number of times he had to say i didn't shoot anybody you you have to think about the setting as well this is unique what other police station opens its corridors where the murder, where the murder, uh, murderer, the alleged murderer, is being interrogated 15 feet away from a glass window door, where there's 50 to 100 press people hanging about. I mean, I don't know. 
I mean, normally people would say being kept out by the entrance and, you know, once in a while somebody from the law enforcement official would come down and start talking to people and say, oh, this is what's happening, such and such, blah, blah, blah. Instead of that, you have here all these people. They can bring in their TV cameras, which are like the size of, I don't know, three people standing together, you know, like that. They're like put their arms on each other's shoulders in, in, in a circle. Then, you know, the size of these cameras in the, on, on, on these tripods, on these stands, and the, the amount of cabling coming out that corridor going down. I saw a picture of that. It was almost looked like people were like a fire engine had five or six hoses coming down from the third floor. That's what it looked like, just for power. And just they had all the access in the world. Look how how the DPD is trying the the the, the detectives of robbery and, of homicide and robbery with their white stetsons. How they are actually struggling on the twenty second every time getting Oswald to come through while he's talking. Whereas on the 23rd, when Oswald is just in his white T-shirt, they really drag him and push him through the corridor. They're not giving the press much time to actually answer and question him as much as they would, would like. You know, so there's, a, there's quite a difference in between and in, the, in the demeanor in the videos from the 22nd and the 23rd. That was a reaction purely because there's way too much access to Oswald, but it helped spreading the news. It helped spreading. I mean, Oswald gets arrested. Less than an hour later, James Hosty arrives at the Dallas police and starts talking about that he's a commie defector. So hold on a minute. Commie defector in Dallas within the hour. And he, he isn't brought in as the, as the killer of the president. He's brought in as a cop killer. So the people that work with him, they don't want to have anything to do with him right there and then. Who? What? Oswald shot a cop? Well, yeah, I just knew him. I worked with him, but he kept to himself this, that, and the other. And he was keeping to himself. But, of course, if you have something like that and it goes like, and, some, and this guy's only been working for, what, six weeks inside that warehouse? He's not somebody who instigates conversation. I mean, he'll talk back to you when, you when you start a conversation with him, but not the other way around, unless it's really necessary, like a direction or, or a question. But overall, he really sticks to himself. So, how you know, he's barely known and a cop killer. Who wants to associate? Oh, yeah, I stood next to him. I mean, look, it happened with, with, with Buell Frazier. Will Frazier, they were going to have him, Will Fritz wanted him to sign a confession to say that he was an accomplice. Well, they already wrote it out for him. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They said, yeah, here, yeah. sign this. Here luckily, you go, sign this. Luckily, he read but just, it. But just imagine, that's the captain of homicide and robbery. And everybody acts like, well, that's nothing special. You know, that's, it's almost like filling out a booking sheet or taking someone's fingerprints. Well, no, here, here you go. Sign this. Oh, what does that mean? It means you go into the electric chair and you voluntarily sign this. Now, so, and everybody just thinks like that's a really normal thing to do. That's just absolutely horrendous. That's not justice. And you, that makes you think like, well, that was with Oswald. How did that go with all the others? 
Will Fritz had a 98% clearance rate. Now, Len, how the hell do you get a 98% clearance rate? Maybe in Russia or in Belarus or, I don't know, Zimbabwe or, you know, something like that. Anything with a dictator in charge. North Korea, perhaps. And can say, like, yeah, we've got a 98% clearance rate. But no, in Dallas, we've got a 98% clearance rate. How do you justify that? And that's just about beating these people into submission. And that them shows documents. how crooked that, that that police station was there. Well, there were elements that were really bent. I mean, I wouldn't say that police station was, but there just elements in there that were Yeah, but you know, from bent. the top down, right? Oh, you know, they, get, they got away with it. So, yeah, certain people are complicit by letting it happen. The other thing I read was that you do not speak up against Will Fritz and his posse of the robbery and uh, the homicide and robbery people, and they were also regarded as the elite. You know, if I go to Dallas, I'd really love to find out more about that, about the whole thing. Um, well, you know, you know, one good thing is they kept some DNA records. I, you know, in your book, you go through that, and uh, and it went on to show that people started investigating these. I don't want to say cold cases, but but older cases, and they That's found true. out that yeah. they hid evidence that would have exonerated yeah. someone yeah. Yeah. time it's and time again. Criminal, and you know what the thing is, is that the fact is, is that these people that done this, they should be prosecuted for doing so. You know, it's just unbelievable. Just what that that that. That that is actually able to happen. I mean, here's another thing. I don't know what it's like in Canada, but in Europe, compared to the states, police in Europe, a police officer cannot lie to you. You know, in the states, they can say whatever they want, and there is no repercussion whatsoever. They can tell you the biggest hooey ever and present it as truth and get away with it. You can't do that in Europe. It's frowned upon big time. But I'm just saying that when they went back to study this. You know, like that, that's one reason a lot of things got buried because, you know, with a wink from the police chief, that evidence would disappear or all of a sudden somebody would drop something on the guy's desk and, yeah. oh, okay, where'd this come from? A second wallet? Yeah. Okay, no problem. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, the the Edmund Gray book is, 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 is a good book who worked as an assistant DA for Henry Wade and started to highlight things. I mean, Texas had, when it came to... Uh, bad cases and all that, exoneration, this, that, and the other, all these things. I think, um, if I recall correctly, it was nine times the nation average with Texas. But you know, and at the same time, you've got a DA there who stayed, who was, who was in there for what three decades, three and a half, thirty-five years, and he was well loved. So you know, the people loved him, and they kept voting him in as such. So you know, must have done something right. And was just tough on crime, and that's what they love down there. So, uh, you know, they 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 could do whatever they want, want it. But it, you know, it's a, it's an it's an area that hasn't been really investigated as a whole. There are a few articles here and there in uh, some of the Texas magazines and newspapers, but there isn't like I haven't seen come across like something really as important unpopular as looking into all these uh, yeah, criminal practices uh, of what the Dallas police did uh, back then. But you know what? It's not just Dallas. You know, you could, I mean, a lot of people say, oh, well, Dallas is getting uh, condemned, da-da-da. You know, it could have happened in New York. It could have happened in New Orleans. could have happened in L.A. Uh, you know, 
it could have happened anywhere. But just for those of us looking into it, it did happen in Dallas. And, yeah. you know, the way you mentioned that the CIA kept some documents and they kind of really detail what's going on. Then the FBI has their interviews. And yeah. then um, it's just shocking the lack of proper interviews. That's what was surprising that, well, we don't record this, so we don't take notes right away. Then we go out in the hallway, then we write notes down, and or somebody will be in the corner taking notes. And no. it's kind of like, are, are you serious? Is this is what you yeah. want everybody to believe? Yeah, this is the, 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 the biggest case, like the biggest crime case that century at that time was right there. And it was run by a old person, Will Fritz, who ran the whole thing like an Afghan warlord and who could do whatever he pleased. And the way they did justice back then, you know, I mean, they didn't write anything down. There's no notes. And uh, I've got several sources for that who claim uh, that Fritz never wrote anything down. And then the way they did that back then was that they would just, like, say, if Fritz were interrogating, then he'd bring Boyd or Sims with him in, in, in the room, and they would be sitting there as observers. But then when it comes to court time, Fritz could say whatever he wanted, and then he could have one of those guys just go, yeah, that's exactly what happened. There you go. That's it. You know, there were no audio interviews, not for at least another 20 years before finally the police mandatory started to audio record um, interviews as such. He said, like, uh, Fritz during his uh, Warren Commission testimony said, that, yeah, we asked him twice for a tape recorder. But nobody asked him and said, like, well, why don't you go out in the hallway and tell one of these reporters and say, give me your tape recorder because I'm going to need to tape. I need to tape record this conversation as such. Yeah. Why did that happen? I mean, you can talk all this like in hindsight about, well, yeah, we could have done such and perhaps we could have done this and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, what? there and then he had stenographers. There were loads of women there who could do that and typists. Who could do that? And none of them were used because it was Fritz's way to get people to confess. But Oswald, Oswald was just too good for him. You know, he couldn't break Oswald at all. At all. And, you know, that, i got to give kudos to that because, you know, Fritz would just wear these people down, break them down until they got, he got the confession written down on paper and bang, there you go. That would be it. But Oswald didn't play along with that at all. He knew his he knew his way through with rights with, with his rights, and he knew what to expect in that kind of situation. Maybe being um, a low level intelligence agent, you know, having trouble in New Orleans and a few other things, and even his dealings with Hosty, right? He was what would you call him hostile to? Hosty? I wouldn't call Oswald. No, I wouldn't. Well, that's another thing that's. Anyway, there was some also, talk of arguing it's a storm or in a teacup. Yeah. Yeah. That's a storm in a teacup about Oswald and Hosey accosting his wife. Hosey himself was pretty cool about it. He just says, like, hey, I know you. You've been the one that's been talking to my wife. Okay, fine. But then the next thing you read a James Bookout interview where he was slamming the table and got really angry and this, that, and, the, and it's like, come on. And then in the end, it's not a big deal because... He's not hostile to them afterwards at all. He answers all the questions because the FBI didn't answer the questions. The FBI asked Will Fritz to ask Oswald a question. All the questioning went through Will Fritz. 
the FBI never got to talk to him uh, by himself as such until right. men in Klamath. Yeah, just the fact that Hostie knows him, though. He's already known to the FBI. Oh, yeah. Oh, God, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the whole thing. I mean, that's funny about Hostie as well. Hostie comes in. And he says, like, oh, my God, I can't believe Oswald. We got a file on this guy, and I thought he could do it, this, that, and the other. And Jack Revel was there. Now, Jack Revel and Jim Hostie had a altercation, an argument the day before. So Revel goes to Ganaway, who is head of the Criminal Intelligence Division. And they basically, and Ganaway tells Revel, write a report. So with lightning speed, Revel writes a report about... Hosty saying all that and that gets Hosty in hot water with Hoover. I mean that got him actually sent to uh, I think it was Kansas City he was sent off to um, you know got this got in, got in real trouble for it. Real real serious trouble with Hoover when that document came out. Actually uh, it was so bad that uh, that in combination with Jesse Curry Jesse Curry just talking left, right, and center to the reporters about the FBI in a, bad, in a bad way and all that, that the cooperation between the Dallas Police Department and the Dallas FBI was basically nullified, not until um, Curry had left his position. I think it was four or five years before he actually went at the top of my head. I'm not sure. But it took quite a few years before the FBI uh, renewed their bond with the Dallas police. As such and you know what Dallas police was really dependent on that because you know the, the FBI labs have got much better materials uh, at their disposal and techniques and so forth so uh, you know they were they were kept away from all that for quite a few years yeah. what a mess <laughs> well I think that you kind of summed up I was going to ask you what your conclusion was and you said that the fact that they got away with it though that's what you know, when we're looking through the, the footprint yeah. and archaeology of this case and forensically analyzing it. The, the, problem, the problem I find is, and, and, and it becomes more and more and more. I mean, it's already done when you're talking about the Kennedy film, about some of the witnesses saying, well, the FBI changed this and I never said that and this, that and the other. Is the amount of interference from the FBI in that investigation. And it's not just with Oswald and the, and the evidence, like the Heidel ID, but it's also with the creation of the second floor lunchroom encounter. And it's also for all the people that were inside the Texas School Book Depository when the shooting happened. Let me just, okay, so on this, after the stairs, if you go in, there were two black guys on the first floor. On the second floor, there were two women in two different offices. On the third floor, there were Five people uh, spread over two offices and one apparently, as she said, was walking from one office on one side to the other. And then on the fourth floor, you have 10 people, 10 women. And on the fifth floor, you've got four people. So there's quite a few people. But what they're all doing now, you know, Barry Ernest and his book with Victoria Adams. And that highlights something really important is that the FBI and the Warren Commission really tried to stay clear from anything or any traffic on the stairs and people coming and countering. And on top of that, looking outside west windows. And this is the funny part about the west windows on the fifth, fourth and third floor. Nobody is talking about what they really saw. 
Nobody's talking about like who they talk to with and how long they stood there. And it's more than evident that these people in the offices all stood on west side windows looking at it. And it goes so bad that on the three women that are on the western western office on the third floor are basically saying that they didn't even hear the shots. So I've got people hearing shots on the first, second, fourth, fifth floor. And yeah, the people on the third floor can't hear the shots, whereas somebody else, um, the gentleman who was on the third floor and was photographed in the dealer photos, Wilson, Stephen Wilson, he said, like, yeah, I heard three shots, clear, pretty clear. And he was behind a closed window um, because it was closed for the air conditioning. Um, that was the whole interference of the FBI changing testimonies because what they did as well is that although there are 10 people on the fourth floor, they make two people appear on the front steps and they cannot be accounted for at all by anyone else. No one else from from the, who was standing on the stairs, no photographic evidence exists that says, oh yeah, there they are. So they changed all that. The feds have really had to change a lot of statements of people and basically tell them to quieten things down. Ah, oh, don't worry about that. Don't talk about that. No, he didn't hear that. The echoes, blah, blah, blah. And just make it as basic and, you know, really basic summarization of things with not too much detail. And, you know, the the whole West Window thing um, especially got my attention when the boys, the three black guys from the fifth floor, Bonnie Ray Williams, Harold Norman and James Jarman, make their way down. So in the first statements, they say, yeah, we went down and we talked briefly with those women looking outside the window and then made our way downstairs. And this is happening in the minutes after. And by the time it's the Warren Commission, it's like, oh, no, we just didn't stop. We went straight through. So those boys have been rehearsed and trained to uh, not to deviate too much uh, from their uh, journey going down as such, like what they actually did by stopping on the fourth floor. Just make that sound like it was a non-event. Um, same thing with Otis Williams. Otis Williams went to the fourth floor. As well, he was on, on the front steps and he went up, he went to the fourth floor and the next statement he did, he didn't make any mention of the fourth floor at all. You know, oh, no, I went back to the second floor. Um, <laughs> you know, things just change. And uh, especially with the FBI, um, there's been a lot of pressure on people uh, regarding uh what was happening, what, what they were looking at. Because the thing is, all these people had an absolutely exemplary view of what was happening, like um, behind the picket fence, the railroad yard, Lee Bowers' place. You know, so if you, Lee Bowers could look straight ahead and see the people at the picket fence. Well, basically to his west, his nine o'clock, was basically the west side of the Texas School Book Depository. So third, fourth, and fifth floor have just a prime view of looking down what actually was going down in that area. And those people could have all given tons of information about what was happening there. And that was all cut out. It was just not asked about, none of that. So, And, you know, 
the bits with um, the people that were on the stairs, although they say it's not Oswald, quite a few have said so, three or four of them, nobody can point out and say, oh, that's such, so-and-so. Everybody goes, I don't know. Or it's just avoided, not answered. So um, the only person that's been asked about this recently in the last 10 years is Buell Frazier. And Buell Frazier can't keep his answers straight. So he's a terrible witness in, in all honesty. His answers are all over the place. Um, if you just look at, you know, from, from 63 till now, and especially in his book, um, it just doesn't add up at all. So, but I could talk. I could talk for hours about this, Len. <laughs> well, oh, we're going to encourage people to get the book, Prayer Man, more than a fuzzy picture. And really, you go through a, a lot of um, uh, points and views, and then and then just outright transcripts of some of the things I had never heard before, or hadn't taken the time to go through so much in depth. And it's just for the people that want to cling to. Lee Oswald as the assassin. Once you read some of these transcripts, I mean, it's just, you know. <laughs> uh, I've got one message for them. It's called Go Home. Um, you know, um, there is uh, the evidence is, you know, that's the thing. The book is based on the evidence. Like you say, the transcript of the interviews, but also the documentation of the Warren Commission, the HSCA, the ARB, um, you know, and others, newspaper articles, interviews, magazines, pictures, videos. Um, you know, I tried to, I was just like a crazy stamp collector trying to collect everything as much as possible that adds value or, you know, another bit of information that right. could be added That's on. happening in that three day period. Yeah. Uh, and, then and then you also of- mentioned that you also have a lot more from Malcolm Blunt that just has not been. Uh, categorized and aren't you well, just yeah, there is so the material I used. I mean, when it comes to my subject, there's uh, that's pretty much everything that has bearing on that matter. Prayer Man, the text school book deposit, and his interrogations. I've used all that, but uh, with Malcolm, well, I'd say 95% of his archive is available. The uh, the other 5% is uh, his stuff that he doesn't want to published yet it has been scanned in and it will get published once malcolm sc- says you scanned know. is one thing but reading it is another and i know oh. that just from the jim garrison files that i had i had two gigs of of filing cabinets full of of, of um jim garrison stuff and i could only read so much and thanks to like paul blow and a few other people they've been going through it and and categorizing it and making it searchable and uh huh. indexing it so uh, well, this is where artificial intelligence needs to come in now. That's the beauty of it. You know, in the next few years, I think artificial intelligence will help us to plow through these documents much quicker. It will see things much quicker. You know, do uh, object character ob- object character recognition with by making turning them into PDFs. So by basically um, applying OCR object object character recognition, it basically sees all the words. And then if you really have, you know your thing with artificial intelligence, then you can start basically looking at people's signatures and scribbles and handwriting. And once that's been assigned to somebody like Jed Hoover, had quite a distinctive handwriting style. But once you've like done that with artificial intelligence, it will help you 
see things that weren't that, although they're on the surface, you have to understand them as such. So there's definitely like more to be looked at within the same batch of documents and find new additional information and connections as such. And you have to... Sorry, is there yeah, somewhere, what, a direction you would be looking for? Well, I'm now looking for... I'm thinking of doing another book, but it's uh, photography-related because actually Prayer Man was also a photography-related subject. I'm now doing thinking of doing something, uh, again, purely based on a documentation that's not available on specific subjects. And this time, though, there's things on the Minox, the Minox camera, there's things on the Nix film, there's things on the evidence films. Now that, oh, <laughs> Len, that's just one of the biggest, craziest things ever, the evidence films, the Oswald evidence photographed by and the DPD and the um, FBI. And there's so many discrepancies in it. There's so many stuff that basically the FBI say, well, these frames didn't turn out. And there's like 50 or 60 odd frames that have just been disappeared as such. Um, it all still needs to be investigated. But yeah, I've, you know what? I can go on for um, five to 10 years with, uh, with Malcolm's material easily. And then I'll just stick with Dallas. <laughs> okay. You know, just five to 10 years. And if I wanted to go to Cuba, do the Cuban thing, or I want to do it, and especially when you want to do the central intelligence thing, gosh. No, well, that's much. where my interest would be in the CIA. I really feel that Alan Dulles and his tentacles are behind this. And I think people like J. Edgar Hoover and, 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 and other like-minded individuals, you know, like from Sullivan Cromwell, from when, when they all got together in a, in a, and they said, look, this guy's got to go. Just make it happen and we'll back you up. And then, you know, that includes Lyndon Johnson and the Warren Commission and all that. They just, they went along with it. So there's not too many, you know, there's uh, David Talbot, right, has written on an Alan Dulles. Yeah. And, um, you know, that that's... I mean, I, I read a fair bit on, on the Central Intelligence Agency because of, you know, books by Jeff Morley and the work that Malcolm has done and John Newman and... Um, but it's not something that I investigate or research. I mean, I read it, and that's different than researching. Um, because well, right, you know, way. and there was some controversy because uh, Oliver Stone had mentioned, he said, well, we were looking into uh, Ed Lansdale, but there isn't a lot of paperwork on some of these things. So when some people are, you know, operators and they get a phone call and they do something, there isn't a paper trail. So some of these... Um, like, you know, like even these phony military um, intelligence, uh, well, I, I don't have to get into all that right now, but it's just, you know, sometimes you have to just stand back and look at the skeleton and say, I imagine this is what the big beast looked like because we're not going to find something intact. We're not going to find all the paperwork. Here's your payroll. Here is this, you know. Um, yeah, but um, that's that. fair enough. And that's also the reason why I kept with what I'm doing now, because I wouldn't, I couldn't even presume to bring forward such a detailed picture of what actually happened inside the Texas School Book Depository, right in front of it, and what happened with Oswald in, the, in his last 47, 48 hours. With that much detail, 
I mean, there's 1,220 odd sources to click on with the ebook. Um, for the book, the the the, the paperback version, there's uh, there's a on the website there's a link that takes you there, and each chapter has every link that's numbered in the book there. So you know, if you have your phone next to your book, you can basically go to these pages and start clicking, and it will take you to the document or the picture or the video in question right there and then. Um, one of my pet hates has always been the all the footnotes in the back of the book and going backwards and forwards. And I was like, it drove me nuts. And I was like, no, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to separate them. Because with an ebook, you can click on the links. That's fine. But with a physical book, why not use the digital with the analog and basically say, right, I'm going to do the book and I put codes behind the words. And then the codes are basically with yeah, one yeah, page. Yeah, what these are for somebody who doesn't follow, they're active yeah. links. So as yeah, you're reading, they're, they're highlighted yeah. blue. You can click yeah. on that. And uh, yeah. that's uh, something attractive I forgot to bring up. Yeah, I mean, you have, it's 378 pages. So it's, it's pretty in-depth. And, yeah. uh, it, you know, it's, it's just another worthwhile effort. So I'm just uh, thank you, thank you. For, for making it, you know. And then yeah. people can I mean, it was, it, was good. it was good fun to do it. I mean, the last few months... Have been hard work, uh, especially the editing part and the virgin territory of Kindle publishing and uh, uh, softer back publishing. Um, all these little things about margins and uh, you know, all, all in the Word document and so forth. Uh, just making it look exactly the way you intend to look. Uh, you know, putting a PDF together is one thing, but getting Amazon with the software and so forth to do it as you wanted to do it is a whole different story. Um, but uh, you know, I managed to uh, get that sorted, so I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad that's done. And, okay. Uh, well, the book "Prayer Man: More Than a Fuzzy Picture," and uh, yeah. we're speaking to Bart Camp. Bart, you said that you'll have um, a couple of links for. Uh, I mean, by the show notes, we'll put where the book is available. But yeah. any any other links you have, uh, just well, send. my website, yeah, yeah, prayer-man.com, and I yeah. will add that to the show. Thank notes. you very much. Yeah, okay, cool. well then, before we wrap up, is there anything that you wanted to bring up about the book I didn't get to? Um, no, what I said before, let the evidence do the talking. I mean, it's a bit, it's a bit daunting. It's, it's a similar feeling as, say, you were a teacher, and you're standing in front of a class of 30 fresh students, and you have to learn their names. This is what you get to deal with. You're all of a sudden being... Uh, thrown in the pool and uh, there are all these characters around and it takes a while to get used to them and to go, oh, right, okay, such and such and this guy does that. And you have to look at the videos to basically get form yourself a picture and the pictures to form yourself a picture about who, who these guys are and what, you know, wh what they look like and so forth. Once you get into that, it's plain sailing. And even, you know, there's a lot of people that are mentioned in that book. I wouldn't be surprised if there's about 100, 120 individuals that we're talking about. And I get basically, you know, some people have one mention and some people have 10, 20 pages uh, devoted to what they've done. So it differs. And um, they're basically all resolving around Oswald. And that's what you have to look at. Like, what happened during the shooting where was everyone what were they doing okay and then oswald is basically our 
lead actor into this whole in, into this tragedy and um everything that is available and that i could find uh, has been highlighted about the way he was treated as such and the way the evidence went and so forth yeah well That's one good thing cool. is i think that people listening to black op radio are well acquainted with most of the names so they'll they'll know about it uh yeah. just <laughs> the depressing part is when you read some of these uh um transcripts you go oh my god they're just you know it's like jim garrison ask the question or you know you keep dodging it you keep dodging around the real yeah, point there, you know? there, there are some of those situations when you read the uh, transcripts plus the going off the record things like that uh some some uh, warren commission testimonies are suspiciously uh have very little to show for them you know, uh, wagon oh, cars. Know. Uh, right. And when Alan just... Dulles is asking the questions, I get this, you know, <laughs> they yeah. back. and yeah. also Gerald Ford. I go, you, yeah. you, whatever. <laughs> I'll try to keep it clean. But yeah. Right. So that's no, my I, reaction. I, I totally agree with what you're saying. Uh, Dulles was there almost all the time. Some of the uh, others weren't there at all. They were there in, in name, but uh, that's about it. Um, you know, that's another thing I managed to, get hold of with Malcolm. Malcolm had a lot of uh, internal documents of the Warren Commission that are really interesting to read because they're discussing things and, you know, they're going through drafts of the Warren report as such. There's uh, something that I'm still after and I'm trying to get hold of, which is called the Rankin Papers. The Rankin, the, the, the daily Rankin Papers are exempt from the JFK Act because they're personal but you can get some of it from the National Archives, so that will be my mission to get hold of them. Because everyone used Rankin as like the centerpiece, the center person to report to. So all these guys that were doing uh, investigating and writing about things, they were always writing to Rankin. And he basically, like, as the, as the center of the web, so to speak, um, knew everything and everybody and what was going on as such. Yeah. All right. Bart, thank you so much for taking time to talk to me today. You're most welcome. Thank you very much and, for having me. Right. And keep in touch. Email me anything, anytime anything's new. Okay. I will do that. All right. Thank you. Thanks very much. Okay, Cheers. Bye-bye.